Do one more little thing here as foundation and then we'll zip into the avoiding system, okay? And building up an internalized sense of safety and things that people can do. Liking and wanting. So, as I said earlier, uh, very quickly, summarizing a lot of Western and Buddhist psychology, moment to moment to moment, there is what's called a hedonic tone in psychology or a feeling tone in Buddhist psychology, in the aggregates, in the foundations of mindfulness, the feeling tone of experience being, for sure, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And I would posit that a fourth feeling tone is evolving in us, and it's kind of useful to think about it, a sense of things being heartfelt or not. They can't be simply deconstructed into merely pleasant or unpleasant or a combination of. Okay. What the brain then does is that it responds to the feeling tone. And then trouble begins. Okay? So if you think about it, it's natural to like what's pleasant and dislike what's unpleasant. Right? If uh, something tastes sweet, we like it, we want to swallow it. If something tastes disgusting or poisonous or wrong, we don't like it. We want to get it out. These are natural animal responses. Where we get into trouble is when we move from liking to wanting. All right. So, if you think about it, imagine you're at a party, great food, fantastic, and then they bring you dessert. Right. So they this luscious dessert. Then they force a second helping upon you. Oh my God, no, don't do my diet, forget it. No, the, and you, so you take it anyway. You eat it. Then finally, they want to give you a third helping. You're totally stuffed. You've already had dessert twice. And they say, and they put some on your mouth. They say, doesn't that taste sweet? Don't you like it? You go, oh my God, I love it. And then they say to you, don't you want more? No more. No moss, right? So you can see that it's possible to separate liking from wanting. Or flip the other way. You see these people in Vegas casinos, Reno casinos, playing the slots or here in California. And then it pays off. They look at it. Uh, and they just keep playing the slots. Or certain drug addicts. You know, they get the fix. Uh, but they don't feel anything, particularly as a result. That's why it said, as the slide says, liking without wanting is heaven, but wanting without liking is hell. And it's interesting that in the brain, in a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, uh, which is in the basal ganglia, and another term for that region is the ventral or lower striatum. So if you look into this territory, you can see the same region labeled in both of these ways, nucleus accumbens, ventral, lower striatum. Okay? This part of the brain has these little nodes, literally about the size of a cubic millimeter, maybe a little bigger in humans, that certain nodes do liking uh, the pleasant, others do wanting the pleasant, and other nodes do not liking the unpleasant, and other nodes do wanting not the unpleasant. Okay? The trick is to be able to open to the flow of experience, to liking, without tipping into wanting. And so that's going to be kind of a frame that we explore here. And research suggests that through actually really receiving pleasures, we actually can reduce our wanting for them. The trick 
is to let the enjoyment flow through. This is the middle way in Buddhism, to let the enjoyment flow through and to feel actually fed by it without trying to hold on to it as it passes through your mind. And as we do that repeatedly, we gradually decondition that reflex that reaches for wanting. And we feel more and more rested in a sense of, as the Buddha put it, the happiness visible in this present life. See the basic idea? And how you can help yourself, I, I do this in my own practice, is to really watch the tipping from liking into wanting. You know, enjoying, gotta have it, right? That's the tipping point. Unpleasant, getting angry at it. That's the tipping point. Any questions or comments about this? But be careful. I think there are people who talk fast and loose about a Western Tantra, you know. And like my guru said, once a philosopher, twice a pervert. So the brain evolved to want what it likes. So be careful with what you like because it's very fairly easy to get caught up in the forms of wanting that you might be underestimating. Okay. Oh, great. In the back? Microphone, thanks for doing that. And these are some ways to practice with wanting and liking. Wanting being, in the Buddhist language, tanha, and chanda, wholesome desire. Uh, you know, that's what chanda is. Okay. So related to that question of wanting versus liking, so when one is trying to achieve goals, like, you know, we're so often our culture says you have to have goals in order to, you know, move forward in life, etc. How do you, um, what are some of your words of advice with kind of that balance with goal achievement yeah. and so forth? Yeah, <clears throat> that's great. So, <clears throat> And again, this is the point of all this is to be able to be in the world and really enjoy life. Think about another person that's vulnerable, that you care about. You would wish for your friend to have a deeply enjoyable life, right? You would wish for your friend to have true love. You would wish for your friend to live long and healthy. You would Wish for your friend to eat cherry pie a la mode, right? <laughs> to see beauty, to enjoy sunsets, to stroke cats, right? You would want that for your friend. You would also want your friend to be able to fulfill her talents. Let's say it's a woman. To fulfill her talents, to manifest her abilities, to make the biggest possible contribution that is within her reach to, to give, right? And you'd wish for your friend that she got recognition that appropriate recognition that she took in that people really valued her and were grateful to her and respected her. And you would wish for your friend that she made uh, good money, let's say, in whatever context that is uh, for that particular kind of occupation. You would wish that for her, right? Well, if it's wholesome and benevolent and moral to wish that for another being, it's equally benevolent and moral to wish it for ourselves. This is huge. Because that's actually hard for a lot of people. It's like, well, I could wish it for you, but it's not okay to wish it for me. Right? Now, we would also wish for our friend, right? And doing it as the friend test is a very useful way to kind of dislocate it and then see what the path of wisdom is and then increasingly try to internalize whatever that path of wisdom is. 
flip it around. You would also wish for your friend that she could hold her life lightly, that she would enjoy pleasures without getting caught up in them, that if things changed and she couldn't have that pleasure anymore, it wouldn't be experienced as a terrible loss. You know, in, T- in Tibet, they have these five reflections. Um, is it given to me to escape dying? Is it given to me to escape illness? Is it given to me to escape um, old age? Is it given to me to escape being separated one day, one way or another, from everything I love? And is it given to me to escape inheriting the results of my actions? Those are good questions, aren't they? So we would wish for our friend that she not get too caught up in her enjoyments. We would wish for her that she aspire without attachment, that she would aim high, and she would help herself through skillful means, max her odds of success without getting addicted to or craving about the fruits of her efforts. We would wish that for her, right? Because we would know that's how to maximize your well-being, and that's also how to maximize your contribution to others and to have the best odds strategy of a long and physically healthy life. Same too. We would wish that for ourselves. This for me has been a very important inquiry from a Buddhist perspective, like what is healthy ambition? And also related to that, what's a healthy relationship to what are called narcissistic supplies in psychology? Healthy narcissistic supplies like others uh, tuning into you or seeing you or appreciating you or liking or prizing you, right? And how do we relate to those without clinging, without craving, without getting caught up in the second noble truth, right? And um, that's where for me it's been helpful to develop my thinking about what I call aspiration without attachment and the gradual internalization, like we were talking about earlier, of healthy narcissistic supplies to fill yourself up inside over time so there's no deficit or disturbance in there and thus no basis for craving. And then related to that, one last thing. I don't know if you've ever like watched your mind imagine uh, how bad something's going to be. Like public speaking, oh my God, it'd be a nightmare. Or, you know, or uh, oh, if, if I'm dating this person and if he, she doesn't want to keep with, with me, oh, I'll feel terrible. Or the other way, you ever watch your mind kind of anticipate rewards? Like, oh, it's going to be so great. I'm going to go out, get the bottle of wine, hang out. It's so much fun. I'm going to meet my friend for coffee. It's going to be fantastic. That latte is going to taste so good. Right? Or, some, or I'm going to do this thing and they're all going to love me. I'm going to say this thing in the business meeting and they're just going to be bowled over by my brilliance. All right, we do that. You notice that kind of thing? Right? Your mind's like my mind then. All right, so it's normal. It's okay. And it's interesting because that... Most animals don't do that, right? We do it. Maybe cetaceans, the big brains do that. That's supported by these neural substrates in the default network, in the midline of the brain, which is the neural basis for what I call the simulator. You know, like in Star Trek, they have the simulator, virtual reality. Okay. So we spend a lot of time in the simulator. Here's an interesting thing. Have you ever noticed that the promised um, pains or the promised pleasures in the simulator rarely turn out to be as intense as promised. 
the actual paints, when you do the public speaking and you flub that word and you feel a little silly, but yeah, whatever. Or that person breaks up with you, bummer, but yeah, you move on, right? Or you make that brilliant comment in the meeting and they say, they kind of look at you like, yeah, <laughs> great, you know? Why is that? And I think it's because the producers of the reward experiences, including anticipated reward or penalty or pain, anticipated pleasure, anticipated pain, the producers of that are in subcortical regions that are ancient, 200 million years old, that oldest, most primitive mouse in there is saying, ah, cheese is fantastic! (laughs) When you have cheese, it's nice, cheese. On the intensity scale, it's a two out of ten. You know, it's nice. Cheese, good. But the little mouse is always trying to tell you, get the cheese, it'll be great. Forget how mediocre the last cheese was. Keep chasing cheese. Right? Because that's how you keep animals alive. They're neurotic, but they're driven to get cheese. Or avoid sticks. Oh, sticks are horrible. Avoid that stick, right? See what I mean? And so when you start recognizing that, and you can observe it in your own mind, again, it moves you to a little more disenchantment about the promised pleasures or pains. They're not so great. And that helps us just kind of stay more in that liking zone without tipping into wanting about them. And you can see that directly in your own experience. It's pretty neat. Okay? Oh, man. I really have to keep going with my material here. Or, as Thoreau says, I make myself rich by making my wants feel. Yeah. Um, Or, you know, here's another one. Ajahn Chah's great quote. Uh, this one, I think about routinely. Letting go. See, it's about letting go. You know, this is the Buddha's middle way. Opening to the pleasures and, frankly, opening to the pains of life with a recognition of their transience <clears throat> while, meanwhile, resourcing ourselves with wisdom and with concentration and with virtue and loving kindness and generosity and and so forth. So it's a practice of letting go. And as you see here, Ajahn Chah, this Jack Cornfield's primary teacher, number of other people in the lineage that Spirit Rock is sitting in, he says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. Let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. You let go completely, completely happy. You know? So the question is, how do we enjoy the pleasures of life or tolerate the pains of life while simultaneously letting go? That's equanimity. Okay? Good. How about we move into practice? Okay, I have one more great quote. How did I know? I already told you about this one. This is the Upandita quote. I'll read it. In the deepest forms of insight, we see that things change so quickly that we can't hold on to anything. And eventually the mind lets go of clinging. Letting go brings equanimity. The greater the letting go, the deeper the equanimity. In Buddhist practice, we work to expand the range of life experiences in which we are free. Liberation is freedom. It's about freedom. You know, um, Once in a while, I'll, I'll be in a situation, because I'll do media, and they'll play off of Buddhist ideas of non-attachment, and in effect, say, well, isn't that un-American? You know, right? And in some ways, I do think about cultural disobedience. 
I think about not allowing oneself to think that life is threat level orange or not allow oneself to be manipulated around greed. It's kind of an act of cultural disobedience. Um, you know, I actually think that people, if you think about American values around freedom and self-reliance, to me the essence of freedom and self-reliance is Dharma practice. It's being free in the middle of life experiences, even free in the middle of disciplines or life circumstances to have a potentially you know, lethal diagnosis and to be free in the middle of dying. Or, as was said of a teacher of mine, Ajahn Amaro, um, who's a monastic and lives very strong practices, you know, that he's both very surrendered to the forms of his practice and these various vows and rules and whatnot, while feeling uh, completely free in the midst of them. You know, how do we actually do that? And as we gradually uh, internalize and cultivate positive experiences of various kinds and wholesome qualities, we are truly taking care of ourselves. You know, on the Buddha's deathbed, he said, as you probably know, uh, be a light unto yourself. Uh, take care of your own growth. Don't rely on others for that. You know, be your own primary teacher. So. Okay. Maybe one last question or comment before we slide into safety, fear, helplessness, defeat, and anger. All right? How about the man in the front right there? It's easy. And let's maybe get some windows open, a little, little stuffy in here. My hot air, whatever. Okay, right there. Man, right there, Mike. There we go. Okay, great. I apologize. I'm a little sleepy if it doesn't uh, come out so fluidly. Um, I was uh, surprised recently when I discovered that there are um, exist uh, discriminations uh, against uh, certain genders, women especially, in certain monastic orders uh, around the world. And uh, we hear so much about uh, the differences in our hormones. And, and uh, so how can we, what, what within modern neuroscience uh, is important for us to understand so that we can more deeply connect with each other and create um, peace, contentment, and love? People please ask me or say trivial things. It's, it's, not, it's not happening, is it? It really isn't happening. You know? It's really not happening. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I'll partly because it's my own mind stream, I'll uh, reveal it because it speaks to your thing. Almost bef just before you finished, I was thinking of the Pat Benatar line, love is a battlefield. And what I mean by that is that talking about gender is a tricky business, uh, whatever your gender is. And, but more fundamentally, where you took us at the very end was really quite profound, obviously. So I'll try to, again, discipline myself to be succinct because it's... I, the topic here is equanimity, and, and as I also think about it, you're right. Uh, relations with one's own gender, with other genders, and to the gendered aspects to oneself, within oneself are certainly major topics for equanimity. So quickly, in Buddhism, uh, as you may well know, as, as in many of the other world's traditions, there's just been a dominance of patriarchy, male-dominant structures historically for a long, long time. 
Uh, the Buddha, in his own time, uh, abandoned his wife and young child to go away and do his own practices. In his time, there was some sense of a, uh, a caste, his kin, would take care of his wife and child, but he was perfectly prepared to walk away. And I play myself from time to time with the notion of, what if the Buddha were a woman? I mean, historically, it would have been unthinkable uh, in that time, but it is interesting to play it as a thought experiment. How would the Dharma have been nuanced a little differently? Truth is truth. That's the word dharma. I think it is true that things change, and if you cling to them, you suffer, and if you relax, you are happier. All right. However, it doesn't take a man or a woman to say that, but there are aspects of teaching. I think it is interesting to reimagine the dharma from as if, if it were taught through a, a, in matriarchy, let's say, or if the Buddha were a woman historically. Okay. Uh, so that said, very recently in certain quarters in Buddhism, there's been a willingness to ordain um, female monastics fully. This has been controversial in different ways. The position of, I think, I believe Spirit Rock, I was on the board here for nine years and I turned off a few years ago, but I think Spirit Rock's position and certainly my personal position is, hello, long overdue. Um, and I'm very glad that that process is happening and I've done very small things on my own to support it. Okay, so uh, I think that uh, the Buddha also made it clear that awakening was accessible to anyone, householder or monastic, Brahmin or untouchable, man or woman, or transgender. Ultimately, <coughs> you know, it's awakening's not about those things. Okay, so I think. You know, perfect love, imperfect relationships. I think we have powerful teachings, powerful light. We have muddy stained glass windows, <laughs> muddy traditions. You know, so for me, having had many teachers, none of whom were perfect, to be able to see through the imperfections to what's useful, you know, and, and also but not be deluded about the imperfections. You know, that's an art. So I would say that kind of institutionally. Individually, um, there's been a lot about the female brain, the male brain. And so I'll speak to that briefly. Uh, There is evidence that there are certain differences on average between adult female and adult male brains. But three important points. One, just because you find a difference in an adult brain doesn't mean that it's innate rather than acquired. Because boys and girls, much research shows, start getting socialized very differently from an early age. So very often people will infer from a different you know, adult male and adult female brain, on average, to some kind of law of nature and create all kinds of generalizations about it. And let's be clear, you know, when you have a dominant cultural paradigm, the beliefs or views about others are used in the service of that paradigm. So most generalizations about women or other socially, I don't know what the language would be, down groups, have been used against those groups. So I think it's important to be quite careful about these glib generalizations about the female or male brain. Okay? So it, could be a, it need not be innate at all. Second point, even if there is a difference that's innate, it's only about an average difference. And many male brains are more female than many female brains. 
because you're talking about basically the difference between two distributions, which overlap each other very, very highly. Maybe with good statistics, you can find some statistically meaningful difference between the average male and average female brain. But that's the average, right? And it's really two distributions offset slightly. Very important point. Got that so far? Last point, even if, hypothetically, you know, you can find an innate difference and you recognize that it's just the average brain, how big a difference does that really make? Really. You know, the old line is, if you need statistics to see if something's significant, it isn't very. (laughs) You know? Uh, Or this, uh, apparently when I was in college, there was this handbook of psychology, like 600 small print pages that summarized the whole ed psych library at UCLA. And then in the back of that summary was like a 40-page summary of the 600-page summary of the whole ed psych library, everything that was known about human beings, people. And then in the back of the 40-page summary (laughs) were three statements that summarized everything. Ready? Some do and some don't. The similarities outweigh the differences. And it's more complicated than that. than that being the first two statements and everything else. So I think about similarities. So that's a way in. And I think so in that context then, um, I myself, um, as a man, I try to live with, and this is an issue of equanimity. You know, there's a Zen saying, nothing left out, right? So you try to leave nothing out of your practice. And I went through a very um, upsetting time in a meditation teacher training I was in when I realized that things were getting left out. You know, inevitably, this is true too. I'm white, male, heterosexual, middle-aged, professional, upper middle class, you know, economically American, Westerner, what have you. I'm leaving out so many things, right? And if you belong to a group that's been left out, being left out is not merely neutral, it's negative. Yet again, your voice, your view, your rhythm, your cadence, your dialect, your way of doing things um, is left out yet again. And so I went through a period of a lot of pain of just feeling that. And then I realized that you have to leave things out. Any perspective is partial. Any, um, any sentence has to leave out some words. You can't not leave things out, right? And then I realized, well, um, we cannot leave out the fact that you've got to leave stuff out. See? And that, for me, was a real breakthrough. And I came to more peace with it. So I realized that when I'm with other people that my view is partial. I try to pay attention to the ways I'm privileged and the ways that, what's it like for you to be with me? The way that I land on you, right? Especially if I, um, and do, come from a very empowered stance. Uh, And so I try to take into account that. I also try to really learn from the other. I'm kind of bored by my own mind. I know what I think about things. I'm much, more interest, I'm much more interested in what you think about things. You know, so to me, that's a way into the other. Um, 
Also to recognize that suffering comes in all shapes and sizes. I've known a lot of wealthy people and Beverly Hills types who are as miserable as anybody else. I mean, pain is pain. They worry about this. Things have happened with their kids that, you know, their, their dog is dying. It hurts them. You know, pain is pain. And to, you know, to, to see pain in other people and also to kind of honor and stand up for my own. Just because I'm privileged in a variety of ways doesn't mean that my pain is not real. You know, or the way that you landed on me with those hobnailed boots in my heart didn't have an impact. Got that. Then maybe the last thing I'll say about that, and I, and I know there's a lot of territory, it's just obviously one thing. Um, I think of this teaching from Gil Fronstel, down in, he's a teacher here, been a teacher of mine from time to time. He said, um, you may need to put somebody out of your company because they're not coming to work on time. You may need to put someone out of your monastery because they're growing dope up in the jungle and that's not cool in Thailand. You know, you may need to put someone out of your bed, but never put anyone out of your heart. Right? You may need to distance from them. You may have a view that justice should be served upon them. And you don't have to put them out of your heart. So um, I try to really keep that in mind with other people. And honestly, be willing to be bothered by their suffering. You know, to be willing to get past that first two, three, four, ten seconds of kind of plastic um, persona to persona, mask to mask engagement, and slow down enough to let the little, those ancient empathic systems, which are quite ancient, emotional empathy, resonance, and body empathy, is very old in the brain, to slow down enough, three, five, ten seconds, to tune into the other and to see the ways that they, like I, don't want to die. Or even worse, know that my children will die someday. To be, to be affected by the other person. I think a lot of people kind of give generic compassion, but couldn't be bothered with empathy. You know, it's kind of a default. Oh yeah, I wish you were well. I wish you didn't suffer. May you live with ease. What's the, what's the Queen of England wave? May you live with ease. You know, but they couldn't be bothered to really feel that you're not. So for me, that's a great gift too. And to maybe to finish up, to let other people feel felt by you. That's Dan Siegel's great phrase, feel felt. They, people want to feel felt. So to give them the dana, the generosity, the gift of feeling them and letting them see in you that you felt them. That's a very beautiful gift for other people. And it does tend to calm, it does tend to pour oil on troubled waters. You know, if, if there's conflict, to let other people feel felt by you, you know, tends to calm things down if there's an upset. Okay. Hopefully that was okay. All right. Good. How about safety, huh? You okay with that? And then a quick, then a break. All right. We'll end, by the way, we'll end very close to five, plus or minus a couple minutes. I hope you stay to the good end, not the better end. But if you need to leave early, so bad. No bad karma. You're, you're formally excused from bad karma for leaving early. Okay. So, all right. I massively look forward to more teachers who don't look like me. I think it's a place where people look like me. I like, you know, hey, I look like me. So 
I wish myself well, but I just think we need more teachers who don't look like me. That's what's going to make a lot more difference. Okay. Okay. The avoiding system. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.